Well, this morning, as we've said, we're beginning a new series on the life and ministry of Paul. It's really an amazing thing to see what the Holy Spirit did in his church after the ascension of the Lord Jesus. Um, it's amazing to see what happened in the early church considering the daunting task that lay in front of this small band of disciples. Um, and when you see where the church is at the end of Paul's life, I mean, it is nothing short of amazing what the power of the Holy Spirit did through the life and the ministry of the man that we're going to begin to look at this morning. So with that in mind, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to look at little vignettes, little snippets from Acts 7, Acts 8, um, and then a little bit more of Acts 9 as we get the context of the life and ministry of Paul and bear witness to his conversion. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. Acts chapter 7, picking up in verse 51, we're hearing now from Stephen, one of the first early deacons in the church. Stephen is giving this speech. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as was delivered by the angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. In other words, he died. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Moving to chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, 
and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Please turn your insert over. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision that a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. So this past week, I think it was on Tuesday night that I went in to say goodnight to my 16-year-old. It was probably about 8 p.m. We were going to bed, and he would be up for a few more hours. Um, and interestingly, I saw that he was reading a pretty intense book uh, called Night by uh, Elie Wiesel. I've, I've mentioned it before. Um, and I think it's just a signed reading in his English class, sophomore English class. Well, this book called Night by Elie Wiesel, it's a, it's a kind of memoir that describes how he and his family were rounded up from their homes when they were in Romania in the context of World War II and shipped off to concentration camps. Um, it's one of the most sobering, um, 
painful books to read that I have ever read. Um, it's, it's, it's disturbing in so many ways that these kinds of things happen to, to a group of people. I want to read just a little vignette from Wiesel's book. This is called, he, he, he sets the context, Spring 1944. Splendid news from the Russian front. There could no longer be any doubt. Germany would soon be defeated. It was only a matter of time, months or weeks, perhaps. The trees were in bloom. It was a year like so many others with its spring, its engagements, its weddings, and its births. The people were saying the Red Army is advancing with giant strides. Hitler will not be able to harm us even if he wants to. However, in less than three days, German army vehicles made their appearance on our streets. And on the seventh day of Passover, the curtain finally rose as Germans arrested the leaders of the Jewish community. From that moment on, everything happened quickly. The race toward death had begun. The first edict, the Jews were prohibited from leaving their residences for three days under penalty of death. Three days later, a new decree. Every Jew had to wear the yellow star. We no longer had the right to frequent restaurants or cafes, to travel by rail, to, ascend, to attend synagogue, to be on the streets after six o'clock in the evening. Then, then came the transports. They would be rounded up in their homes and taken by rail car to concentration camps. Departures were to take place street by street, street by street starting the next day. We wanted to know everything. We wanted to know everything in detail. We were stunned, yet we fully wanted to absorb the bitter news. Where will they take us, we asked. Well, that was a secret. There are rumors, my father said, his voice breaking, that we are being taken somewhere to work in the brick factories. Sadly, they were not on their way to work at the brick factories. This group in particular was on their way to the deadliest concentration camp of them all, Auschwitz. You can't read a book like this. Again, I'm still, I'm surprised in many ways that my sophomore son is reading it. You can't read a book like this and not be grieved, troubled, disturbed by what happened. You can't read it without being absolutely repulsed by the evil deeds committed by the Nazis that are described within its pages. I think it's interesting that we don't respond with this kind of visceral response. I think it's kind of interesting that we don't respond this way when we read about the persecution of the early Christians in the book of Acts. Maybe because they're not described in the same kind of horrific detail that Wiesel describes what he experienced when they arrived at the camps. Maybe it's that we just don't know as much about what happened to the early Christians. Maybe because it wasn't on quite as large a scale. But make no mistake, the persecution of the early Christians by the Sanhedrin and the other high Jewish officials 
It was nothing short of brutal and dark. And believe it or not, it was led to a large extent by the man that we know and love as the Apostle Paul. He was the impetus behind much of the persecution, difficulty, and suffering that happened in Jerusalem. He was largely responsible for the Jewish dispersion, okay, probably a year or two after the ascension of the Lord Jesus. I think sometimes that maybe I'm not as troubled by it because I think, well, that happened to Saul and not Paul. Okay, we kind of associate the early persecution of the Christians, we attribute it to Saul, okay, and then the man that we read about later, well, he's Paul, okay, and so he's a different person. Okay, people think, well, you know, he received this name change and, and he became Paul, but he didn't receive a name change. Saul and Paul are always the same person. Saul was his Hebrew name, Paul is his Roman name, and it was not uncommon for these kind of Hellenistic Jews to have two names, a Hebrew name and a Roman name. So our beloved Paul, the man we know as the Apostle Paul, he was largely responsible for lots of the things that happened to the early church in Jerusalem. And we need to reckon with what he did. We need to understand what he did. We need to internalize what Saul slash Paul did, okay, and what his salvation meant, what it meant for Paul and what it means for us because the implications are significant. Okay, the context of Acts 7. So we kind of picked up, we kind of jumped in in Acts 7 when Stephen is making this speech. Why was Stephen making a speech? In the context of Acts 7, if you were to read Acts 6 and then read through Acts 7, what has happened is this, is Stephen was one of the most significant and powerful voices in the early church. There are many scholars who think that Saul slash Paul eventually, ironically, replaces Stephen, the man that he presided the death of. Because um, Stephen was thought of as a Hellenistic Jew, extremely capable, powerful in word and deed. And so Stephen is doing these great things. He's doing miracles and he's effectively preaching. And so the Jews, you know, get a group together and try to debate him, try to refute him, try to shut Stephen down. Nobody can debate him. Nobody can refute him. And so what the Jewish officials did is they... they, um, they, they got two people to levy false charges against Stephen and say that Stephen was speaking against Moses and against the laws of Moses, you know, kind of trumped up charges against Stephen. And so then the high priest in the Sanhedrin comes to Stephen and says, what do you have to say about this? These people are making these accusations against you, that you're breaking our laws. What do you have to say for yourself? And then Stephen gives this amazing speech in Acts chapter 7. And this speech enrages the high priest and the Pharisees, okay? It makes them so mad. Do you remember, like, they stopped up their ears? They stopped up their ears. They get so upset. They decided that this man needs to die. And so they basically commission this young and up-and-coming Pharisee to execute him. Just a question to you. How was it that they executed Stephen? 
when they couldn't execute Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? The reason that Pontius Pilate had to preside over Jesus' death is because the Jews were not allowed by the Romans to exercise capital punishment. And so the Jews had to outsource that to the Romans who presided over Jesus' death. But here, they kill Stephen. How is that possible? Well, many scholars think it's because what the Pharisees did is they handed it over to Paul, to Saul slash Paul, and, and had it look like kind of a mob, like a mob just drug him out of the city and stoned him, okay? So they wanted Paul slash Saul to do their dirty work, okay? In Acts 6, Stephen is described as having the face of an angel, like he is, he is innocent. And yet if you look um, in our text, Acts 7, 58, on your insert, it says they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul is presiding over this. These witnesses were the people, you know, who were bearing witness to what they perceived as blasphemy, that, that Stephen was committing some kind of blasphemous act by preaching the gospel. So those who were going to participate in the stoning of Stephen, they take off their garments and they lay them at Saul's feet indicating that Saul is the one who is presiding over this, presiding over the execution of one of the most significant and powerful integral leaders of the early church. In other words, what Luke wants you to understand is just how evil this was. He wants you to understand how evil, how, how possessed with this evil person purpose Saul was. And make no mistake, Saul's heart is in this all the way. I've also read some books on the Nuremberg trials. The Nuremberg trials is after World War II, allies win. They want to hold the German officials responsible for what they've done, so they conduct what's called the Nuremberg trials, and they're going to try for the first time, like, you know, crimes against humanity. And there was a very common defense among the German officials, so common that they called it the Nuremberg defense. Can you imagine what that was? How did the Nazi officials defend their actions? Do you remember what they said? Just following orders. They kept saying superior orders, following orders. In other words, I had nothing to do with it. I was just doing what I was ordered to do. That is not the case with Saul. What does chapter 8 verse 1 of Acts say? Luke is going out of his way so that the reader understands that what? Saul approved of this execution. He wasn't just following orders. He was not employing the Nuremberg defense. He's saying this was what I wanted to do. I was all in on this. Acts 8 verse 1, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, presumably led by Saul. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Obviously, can you, God's hand is all, all through this. This is how the Lord used Saul to make sure the gospel was spread all throughout that area, because the church was kind of huddled up in Jerusalem. And so this persecution spread the church abroad. But verse 2, 
of Acts 8, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging. The term could also mean destroying the church. Listen to what Saul was doing. Imagine this in your mind's eye. Entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Not just men, men and women. Destroying families, separating parents from their children. If we were there, we would have hated Saul with every fiber in our body. He would have represented like the greatest threat that the church had seen to that point. He was so toxic and dangerous that Ananias was reluctant to obey Jesus to reach out to him. Look at, um, on the back side of your insert, Acts 9, verses 10 through 14. Look at Ananias' reaction. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. In other words, he's saying, how is it that you want me to do this? The only reason that Saul is here in Damascus, which was in Syria, okay, north of Israel, the only reason he's here is that he's received permission from the Sanhedrin to extradite people from Damascus back to Jerusalem. Now, it's because of Saul's persecution that many disciples went to Damascus. Okay, and Paul was upset by that, so he gets permission to go up there to bring them bound back home. Chapter 9, verse 1, you can turn your insert back over. But Saul, how does Luke describe Saul? Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So if you could create someone um, as well suited as possible to destroy the early church, you would create Saul. You know, as he says later, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews, immersed in the law from the earliest of ages, studied under Gamaliel, extremely bright, capable, zealous beyond what we could imagine. And I think that's exactly why the Lord saved him. If you wanted to send a message to the early church that the God of the Hebrews is absolutely sovereign, if you wanted to send a message to the early church that I am with you and I will care for you, and I'm going to build my church through you, you would save someone like the Apostle Paul. You would hold him up an example, as an example, 
of what you are capable of. And that's what the Lord did. God saved Saul to communicate at least three things to the early church, three things that are very relevant to us. Number one, God's grace is deeper than the deepest of sins. It really is. The grace of God is deeper than the deepest and most vile of sins. There is nothing you can do that is not forgivable by the grace of God. Number two, God's grace is stronger than the strongest and most entrenched adversary. I don't care who they are. I don't care if it's Richard Dawkins or you name someone else or your aunt or your uncle or someone else. There's no one so entrenched in their unbelief that they can't be saved. And then third, God's grace transforms. Very briefly, first, God's grace is deeper than the deepest sin. Okay? In 1 Timothy, Paul shares with his readers why it was that God saved him. In 1 Timothy, Paul shares with his readers why it was that God chose him. Here's what Paul has to say. And you'll see this repeated more than once. Paul writes, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Paul is not exaggerating. Again, I think, you know, we, we, we look at Paul through rose-colored glasses because of how the Lord used him to build his church. Paul was, at one time, the very worst of sinners. He presided over and sanctioned the stoning of, Caesar, uh, of Stephen. He, you know, imprisoned men and women and separated families, killed disciples of the Lord Jesus. He said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And then he says, but for that very reason. In other words, because I was the worst. For that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now, this would have been something the early church could use. Now, in sports, typically what you want to do is you want to be playing, you want to, you want to achieve your best win or be at your strongest as a team at the end of the season. You don't want to peak too early. You want to peak at the end. Well, God started out by doing his best work at the forefront, at the beginning. If he could save Saul of Tarsus, he is saying to his early church, I can save anyone. If I can wipe his sins clean, I can wipe your sins clean. Second, God's grace is stronger than the strongest and most entrenched of adversaries. Paul is as entrenched in unbelief as, as anyone you could ever meet. He has spent his entire life being trained and equipped to purify Judaism as he understood it. Okay, he was so committed to his cause that he sanctioned the execution of early Christians. Like, like, please don't let that be lost on you. Just how entrenched, how embedded in unbelief Saul was. 
And God holds up Saul as a trophy of his grace, saying there is no one beyond the reach or grip of God's grace. There's no one. Just imagine someone in your mind's eye, a person that you feel like just has no chance of being saved. I mean, I know that we would, in principle, we would say that everyone, you know, is, is capable of being saved or God can save anybody. But do you pray like that? Or, or like me, do you, do you give up when it seems like the person is not responding? And you feel like maybe you've prayed for them enough and you want to... But there is no one beyond salvation. God saved Paul, Saul, at the forefront to demonstrate what he's capable of. And then third, grace transforms. You know, grace changes people. What was it that fueled Paul for the rest of his life? It was the fact that he viewed himself as the chief of sinners. Okay, so he, he mentions this again in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes, I am the least of the apostles. Like a lot of times, you know, when we when we appropriate and internalize the forgiveness of God, you know what I mean? We don't want to just um, ruminate on our sins of the past. We don't want to get stuck in the guilt of our sins in the past. And so, in a sense, we, we feel the forgiveness of God. We move on. But like in Paul's case, he kept his former life at the forefront of his mind. He never wanted to forget just how far gone he was when the grace of God saved him. He writes in 1 Corinthians 15, I am the least of the apostles. I am unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He writes, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. He said, like, I'm working harder than any of the other disciples. But it's not me. He says, it's the grace of God in me. He realizes where he would have been apart from the grace of God. He realizes it wasn't because, um, you know, he was considering the claims of Jesus Christ. He wasn't. He was trying to exterminate them. He could not believe that God had saved someone like him. And it fueled him and it motivated him. He never stopped appreciating what he was saved out of. I can remember one of my seminary professors telling the story of how he was riding his bike on a country road and, and, and he was a boy and he's riding his bike and he comes up alongside this, this accident, like this young man, maybe 16 or 17 years old, um, had gotten to a car wreck, had hurt someone. And he heard the, the boy saying to the police officer, I'll never forget, I'll never forget, I'll never forget this. And the police officer said to him, the problem is you will forget. You will forget. And that's what we do. We forget the depth and the wonder of the grace of God in our life. You know, the Christian life, being a Christian becomes kind of routine. You know, we kind of, um, we get used to the fact that we're Christians. Where do you think you would be today apart from the saving love of Jesus Christ? Where do you think you would be? What kind of life would you be living? I honestly think I, I probably would have gone through a number of, 
of marriages. I, 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 I don't even know if I would be alive today. Really, truly, if you would have known me in high school, and I've said this before, this is, this is the very last thing you would have ever imagined me doing. And I feel like I am a trophy of grace in the same way that Paul was. The chief of sinners, the worst of sinners, the most unlikely. And the reason that the Lord saved me was to provide an example of the kind of people that he is capable and interested in saving. Is that how you view your own story? Your own salvation? Where would you be apart from the grace of God? God's unmerited, undeserved mercy and grace in your life. That's what fuels. That's what motivates. And that's what sent Paul on a mission to change the entire world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just don't have enough time. We, we, we are limited by time to really draw all of the truths from this passage. Father, I pray that... Um, the dynamic that was at work in, in Paul's life would be the dynamic that's at work in our life. I pray we would all see ourselves and recognize ourselves as trophies of your grace. That apart from your saving grace and mercy, we would be completely lost without you and without hope in a dark and broken world. Heavenly Father, we thank you that by the power of your Holy Spirit, through the power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus, you have drawn us to yourself. Father, help us to remember this. We pray that your grace and your mercy, your unmerited favor, we pray that it would fuel us and drive us to love Jesus and serve him all the days of our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.